It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And if you've downloaded the Radio Player Canada app, you can type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. And you can listen anywhere across the country. Well, I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show today. Bernadette Smith is the NDP MPP for Manitoba, representing Point Douglas. She's joined us on the phone. We welcome her to the show. Bernadette, welcome. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, uh, understand you uh, are co-founder of uh, something called Drag the Red, and of course that's the uh, Red River in Winnipeg, where um, we know that uh, for some time, unfortunately, there have been uh, a number of of bodies found, and uh, and going back to uh, Tina Fontaine, in fact, a number of years ago, where uh, this has been an ongoing issue. Yes, um, so people should kind of know the history. So I have a sister that's missing since mm. uh, July 25th of 2008, and, you know, I started really organizing around uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women in true spirit. There wasn't a lot of organizing here in Winnipeg. In fact, when my sister went missing, there wasn't anything at all. There was no services that were available to our family. There was nobody that came out and kind of helped us through the process. So we've really um, taken on that. We created what's called the Coalition for Families of Missing and Murdered Women in Manitoba. And we've done several things throughout the years to support families. And in 2014, when um, Tina Fontaine's body was recovered from the Red River, they actually weren't looking for Tina. They were looking for a man named Farron Hall. Mm. And Farron Hall was a a homeless man who lived by the river. He was given uh, the Medal of Honor from the mayor from the city of Winnipeg for saving two people from the Red River. Mm. Uh, He was offered housing, but he chose to, you know, live where he was living. And they were looking for him. He was seen struggling in the Red River, and there was a dive team that were searching for him, and they came across Tina. So we think of him as three times a hero, Mm. because had they not been looking for him, they they most likely wouldn't have found her. Mm. And that really got us wondering, you know, if, if they weren't really looking for Tina, Um, how many others, if they were actually looking, could they possibly find in that river? Mm -hmm. You know, whether that was remains of a loved one and, you know, bringing some sense of closure to where they are, you know, whether they're alive or not, because, you know, it's been 11 and a half years for our family, but certainly we've never given up hope that, you know, Claudette could walk through the door one day but we're also realists, right? We also, you know, know that the chances of that are really slim. And we've come to that place that, you know, she's probably not alive, but where is she? So we decided to um, start a group. And it really came out of um, the police not wanting to drag the river. They said, well, you know, it's risk over reward. We don't have uh, the manpower to be able to do that. And we don't have any evidence to search. So it went from the police should drag the red to we're going to drag the red. Mm. And it was basically, you know, community members. We didn't have a boat. We didn't know how to do it. Uh, 
We just invited community members to come together one afternoon and about 30 people showed up and somebody that had dragged in their community in their lake came and said, I'll teach you how to make the equipment and I'll train the people who are going to be on the boat. Someone came with a boat and said, you know, I'll volunteer my boat whenever I can. Um, and number, numerous volunteers came forward and said, I'll help with this. So that's really how it was born. And within two weeks, we were on the river, dragging the river. And this this was our fifth year. And we've continued to do it uh, because families uh, feel that somebody is doing something and that there's, you know, people that go into the river, uh, they put themselves in there. And police will search for them for about four or five hours diving. And most times their body isn't recovered. So we continue to search for them, and we've been successful in recovering their body and uh, bringing bringing someone's loved one home. First of all, let me say I'm I'm sorry to hear uh, about your your family's uh, situation and your missing sister. and um, I wish you all the best with uh, finding a, a you know happy uh, ending to that. Um, however, can you explain something about the Red River too for for people that don't know about the Red River? Uh, it, what are the conditions of that river itself? Is it a fast moving river? Is it very deep? What are the what are the situations that people you know if they are in that river they would enter into? Do you know? So. It's very muddy. Mm-hmm. It's very murky. It's almost zero visibility. It's a fast-moving river. Um, there's a very strong current, like right in the middle of the river. Um, you you wouldn't be successful in crossing that river if you were trying to swim. Many have tried and mm-hmm. have lost their lives, unfortunately, mm-hmm. to that. Um, and it's it's fairly deep. It depends where you are in the river. Um, some point, you know, we put our rope in and our drag bar in, and it's as deep as 30 feet, I would say. And other areas, it's 14 feet, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. I don't think it's any, uh, there's really any shallow points under 10 feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, and it's very wide as well. Yeah. And long. Yeah. And and I guess uh, it also is prone to uh, ice, ice buildup in the spring and thawing and, and those kind of things. Yeah, so we don't we don't uh, go out and drag the river until it's safe to do so, and we wait till the police tell us that, you know, it's the water's been uh, cleared of all debris because they go and do a cleanup because there's lots of big, you know, uh, pieces of trees in there. People often throw garbage in there. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we've pulled out like uh, bed posts, we've pulled out bikes, we've pulled out carts, and as people can imagine like the the red and the assiniboine meet mm-hmm. at the fork so it's you know two bodies of water coming together and you know we know that there is a young woman uh named Miranda Anderson whose body was recovered from the assiniboine and uh her um case has never been solved there was another young woman who is actually from the same community as my sister who came to Winnipeg to go to school at the age of 16, and disappeared, her mother was given a piece of her arm and a piece of her leg, uh, maybe 15 feet away from where uh, Tina's body was recovered. That's where her uh, 
piece of her arm and leg were recovered, and her name was Felicia Solomon Osborne. And, you know, we don't know how many other people can be in there, but we also think about this work as preventative work because people are less likely to put something in that river if they know that someone's searching that river, right? We also um, work with a lot of youth in the community to help youth realize and to, to see their full potential in, in creating a safe community and that they have a place and space to do that and that it's actually part of their responsibility, right? Even though they're young people. So I'm talking about like 16 to 18 to 24-year-olds mm-hmm. that uh, have been on our boat year after year. And, you know, we've had upwards of, I'd say, 400 volunteers a year come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is uh, quite a, a, a good support uh, and a number there. Uh, when I think of uh, the conditions, as you point out, about the river, uh, you know, obviously in the spring, summer, and fall, when it is safe to do so, um, it, it still it makes me wonder, you know, the conditions that people are doing this in, in themselves. Uh, I understand now that there's going to be a new boat uh, that is going to be available, that is being built and was donated, which is going to help this quite a bit. But in previous uh, uh, going out and doing this, I, I've seen a picture of a canoe. Uh, in describing what you're saying with, with throwing these hooks over and dragging, I imagine that there is some risk to the people that are doing this themselves. Yeah, absolutely there is. And we have um, forensic anthropologists that come out and do some training with our our volunteers. So... They teach them how to uh, effectively um, identify remains. They teach them how to uh, search effectively, how to cordon off uh, a potential, you know, area that could be, you know, linked to a homicide. Um, We've also gone over, you know, some of the safety concerns, making sure that everyone's wearing a, a life jacket while they're on the boat, you know, if the potential of someone going over, we mm. make sure that we have one of the, the donuts with the rope on it to to throw that out. We also have the police on on dial, so if anything were to ever go wrong, they have you know their um, their search and rescue boat that could come out and assist us. And there's often a lot of boats that are on the river. We've um, we've had motor issues in the past where we've had to be towed back to you know shore. Um, and, you know, we're super happy that this spring we're, we're getting a new boat that uh, Unifor has graciously uh, built mm-hmm. for our group. And, like, this is a $60,000 fishing boat that uh, we will never have to worry about breaking down uh, or having space to store all of our equipment and have, you know, the people that want to come on and help uh, drag so it's it's just phenomenal for us because we've had so much difficulty in the past with our boats. We last year we had to pay ten thousand dollars to uh, fix one of the motors, and we could have bought a new boat, but that boat had sentimental value. It was uh, named Sean mm-hmm. after uh, a young woman's uncle who had committed suicide in the river, and our group had helped recover his body. So his niece did a run and raised $16,000 and purchased that boat in honor of her uh, her uncle. Mm. So we didn't want to just, you know, get rid of it. We sure. wanted to make sure that we 
we preserved his memory, so we fixed it, and and that's going to be our backup boat for uh, nice. the from now on. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, I just want to let everyone know that uh, you're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and uh, you're listening in Toronto and Ottawa. My guest is Bernadette Smith. She's the NDP MPP in Manitoba, representing Point Douglas. Uh, That's a a neighborhood in the Winnipeg uh, area by the Red River. Uh, Bernadette, are you able to describe any further about the area that that the the Point Douglas area covers in in connection to the Red River? So we... uh we go from the river to the track. So, um, you know, we, we cover a fair bit amount of, of uh, the Red River. And part of, um, you know, I used to play in that water as a young girl. There's lots of parks. You know, people have, there's walkways along that river. So lots of uh, traffic along that river. Mm. We used to actually search along the banks, but now we've... Uh, we have a great partnership with two groups that are doing community patrol in the community. So we have a group called Bear Clan, which is, you know, was started in the North End, but it's really expanded right across Canada. Lots of different uh, provinces are are uh, setting up their own Bear Clan patrol. And then we have another group called Mama Bear uh, mm-hmm. Patrol. And they patrol the North Point Douglas area, which is by the river. Um, and those two groups, you know, they go out every day. They're going and they, they're talking to the community. They're uh, making relationships with community. They're helping people uh, connect with resources and really um, helping keep our community safe. And, you know, I think of that as another preventative measure of, you know, people thinking twice about, you know, doing any type of crime when you have people, you know, that are actively patrolling the community and are actively patrolling those areas. And and how does the how's the relationship between uh the Mama Bear, the uh Bear Clan and the uh Drag the Red uh with the with the uh, emergency services and police? Well, I can't speak for the other two groups. Um we've certainly um developed a relationship with the police. I can't say it was always a great relationship. You know, we um we certainly felt that uh they didn't want us doing the work that we were doing. We were told time after time that you're looking for a needle in a haystack, mm. you're wasting your time, you know, don't bother. But now we're at a place where it's, if someone goes in the river and they need assistance, they'll let us know, mm. which is great because, I mean, we want to have uh, a working relationship with one another. We want to, we all want the same outcome. We mm. want to bring someone's loved one home, right? We don't want them, that to be their final resting place. And uh, certainly, you know, um, working collaboratively is better than working offensively. And I think, you know, we're at a place where we're on the same team now. How not quite sure the word uh, to use uh, with what you're doing. It's it's essential work that you're doing. It's uh, needed. It certainly is there, as you say, to to help bring closure to families and to find evidence and things in some, in either cold cases or uh, just in terms of of people that have perhaps fallen in, that committed suicide, that they're missing. Um, how? successful has the 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 process been uh, since you've been uh, since you developed this well this year is the first year that we have not recovered any bodies 
mm. and there's been no no people that have gone into the river. So we're thankful of that. Um, but past years, every year we've recovered bodies. Mm. We've recovered someone's loved one. We've brought them home. But it's not only about recovering, you know, someone's loved one. It's also about that preventative, mm-hmm. you know, piece and and people knowing that that's not a place that you can put, mm. you know, someone's loved one and they're not going to be found because we're out there looking. The other fold to it is that we are, we're building community. We're helping people to connect to this issue, something that we certainly felt when my sister went missing that the community wasn't connected to it unless they were directly connected. Mm. They weren't involved at all. So we've really uh, worked hard to to help community come together to really um, connect to this issue and, and do something about it because it affects everyone. And I say this to all people, like, just because you don't know the person or you don't live in the area or you're not a woman or you're not Indigenous, you know, all of these things that we, we talk about to other uh, each other, you know, those are non-existent in things like this because... We all live in this community, and whether that's your loved one or not, you are directly affected, mm-hmm. and it's something that everyone should be, you know, um, involved in. And certainly, we all have a responsibility as, you know, as a community to care and share for each other. Mm-hmm. How how large of an area are we talking about when we say the Red River that you're that you're, you're dragging? Oh, it's hundreds of kilometers. We'll wow. we'll never in our lifetime be able to drag this whole river. Oh. We we do identify different areas though based on the current where mm. if something were to go in the river that the current would take them and they would get stuck there. Mm. So we often they're called eddies mm. and we've you know, in the last five years have really watched this river and um we've worked with uh people who, you know, know the water. And, you know, know the current system and, you know, really identified where we should be searching. So if someone goes into the river at a certain point, you know, that's not where we're going to be searching. We're going to be searching, you know, probably a mile or two down the river. So we've Mm -hmm. really um, learned uh, in the beginning, we had no idea what we were doing, right? We were like uh, really fishing in the dark, basically, is what we were doing. And it's it's really daunting, you know. It's sure. it's emotional work because yeah. you're looking for, you know, you're not fishing for fish; you're mm-hmm. fishing for bodies, yeah. right? And yeah. it's and it's emotional because when you're pulling something up, you don't know what's going to be at the end of of mm-hmm. that uh, that drag bar. Right. And you know, we of, we often say to our volunteers, like, you have to be emotionally, physically, and spiritually prepared when you go out there because it's it's challenging. Like you think, oh, I'm you know I'm a strong person. You know I can handle anything. But when you're pulling something up and you don't know, and I've talked to many of our volunteers, like that first pull, mm. you know, and bringing up that that bar, how emotional that is for people. Mm. And they always remember that, right? So whenever we start, we always you know do an offering to the water. Mm. We say a prayer to make sure that. Uh, you know, we pray for the people that are on the boat. We pray that we're supposed to find whatever we're supposed to find. And we always pray for our families and our mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do that at the end as well. 
We also work sure. with um, elders mm-hmm. because whenever we do recover, you know, someone's loved one, we have to also carry that, right? So we, we bring in our elders to help us unpack that so that we're not carrying it because it's not ours to carry so that we can let go of that mm-hmm. and realize that we've done something, you know, really beautiful to help someone come home. Right. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you mentioned the elders. Uh, I was going to ask about uh, some kind of assistance that you might have for your volunteers uh, because of the emotional work that it is and because it can have an effect on on people doing this day after day. Uh, it could be it could be quite traumatizing. So uh, I appreciate you saying that, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that that support is there for the people that are volunteering. It's important work. Uh, it's, as you say, it's very challenging, and it's very daunting, and uh, I'm sure it can be quite, uh, quite traumatizing for for everyone. Um, but uh, to to put you know volunteer yourself to go out there and do this this much needed work is uh, it, you know it, it it really is nice to hear that there's support and that you're doing those things that, that, you know um, uh, doing the prayers and having the the uh, the elders involved and and for those people that's that's great and, and helping to bring closure for for people uh, and families as well. Yeah, absolutely. We also start each season with a feast Mm. and pipe ceremony, and then we also end our season with a feast and pipe ceremony. Mm. And that's a way to, like, start in a good way, but also to do a debriefing at the end, right, and come together and talk about what were some of the challenges, what were some of the, you know, the good things that happened, what are some of the things that we should continue, maybe some of the things we should change. And always trying to, you know, give give voice to people who are involved because, you know, without them, we wouldn't be able to continue doing this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nice to hear that. Uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the Bear Clan uh, program earlier, and uh, you mentioned the, the Mama Bear Patrol as well. But um, I, I know that uh, the, the Bear Clan uh, program uh, is, is there to, to, to help in other ways. And I, I think you, you, you wanted to just... Uh, uh, add on to that something about the the food that they're doing. They, I believe, they have somewhere that they actually are handing out food. Yeah. So the North End has uh, really been challenged in the last, I'd say, I don't know, three years with food security. Mm. We've had uh, a number of um, local stores close, mm. and you know, we we don't have a lot of stores in in the community, and. The North End is really a place of, um, there's a lot of poverty in the North End, mm. but there's a lot of resilient activists, like beautiful people that are strong people. And uh, so what's happened is, like the Bear Clan, when they started, they didn't really um, have an office, right? They were mm. kind of borrowing space. Mm-hmm. And then they were able to get some funding, and then they got their own space, and then they got more funding, and they were able to increase their space. And they've um, developed relationships with with uh, real retailers in the community, you know, such as Sobe, Safeway, Costco. So what happens is rather than, you know, the stores throwing out food that's about to expire, you know, maybe a day or two, they're about to expire, they call Bear Clan and every day Bear Clan goes and they pick up uh, produce. Now they're actually even getting... Uh, um, Proteins, so meats. Mm. I've gone there and they they were giving out chicken. 
So a number of companies have stepped up as well and are really helping to, you know, feed the community. So people come every day. Um, they line up. Pardon me. They line up and then they come in. They bring their own bags and they do a shop. So they're allowed to, you know, pick one of each thing. So they'll have stuff like fresh tomatoes, fresh lettuce, uh, fresh cucumbers, fresh fruit, mm-hmm. um, bread, uh, and like I said, meats and, and other things. They often have treats for kids mm-hmm. as well, but a lot of healthy kind of things that you don't really find in the North End or they're high-priced, mm-hmm. right? And often people won't choose to buy those because they cost more money or, you know, they're they don't look very good. Mm. They've, they're about to, you know, they, they're going bad. Mm. People are still selling them. Mm-hmm. So the Bear Clan has really done uh, an amazing job in terms of answering the food security for the community. Mm-hmm. And they've now out, uh, they, the space they're in, they've outgrown it. Mm. So now they're moving across the street into uh, another space as well. And I've heard I got a call yesterday from the same union. So Unifor called yesterday and said, "Hey, I heard uh, Bear Clan needs some some uh, freezers or <laughs> refrigeration. So they might be getting some donations of refrigerators to be able to house their, you know, their produce mm-hmm. and the the um, donations that they're getting." That sounds great. Uh, it, it sounds like great work they're doing as well. Yeah, absolutely they are. And what Mama Bear Clan does, Mama Bear Clan actually makes food, so they'll Mm. make sandwiches every day. And when they go out, they actually feed people. Nice. So, and these are often people who are homeless Mm -hmm. that are on the street. So kind of two different, like people come to the Bear Clan to pick up food where Mama Bear Clan goes out to the community to, you know, find the people who need the food that can't get to Bear Clan, mm. right? So it's, they also do um, uh, hygiene um, packs. Mm-hmm. So they have like soap, toothbrushes, uh, feminine hygiene, you know, the types of things that uh, we we might take for granted, right? Mm-hmm. Having a toothbrush, sure. having a brush, yep. those types of things. And Often uh, community members will put together their own packages, drop them off at the North Point Douglas Women's Center, and then Mama Bear Clan will go out and distribute them. They make sandwiches as well, so they go out and feed the community. It's just, you know, the two groups are doing such amazing work, and, uh, you know, our community is is better because of both of them. Mm. That sounds great. They are doing great work, and and as you are, uh, for uh, founding the Drag the Red uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today, Bernadette, and, and uh, sharing your thoughts and, and uh, all the great work that is being done uh, up in Winnipeg on these, on these important issues. All right. Thank you for having me. And I just want to say I certainly uh, appreciate uh, you sharing what you did about your own missing sister, and I certainly hope that your family is able to find closure with that at some point and, and some, something positive uh, comes out of this for you. Uh, once again, Thank I want to you. say Nyawa and uh, Chimigwech for joining us on the show today. That is Bernadette Smith. She's an NDP MPP in Manitoba representing Point Douglas, and she was speaking to us about the Drag the Red 
which uh, she founded back in about... 2014. Thank you. 2014 is when she founded it. So thanks again to Bernadette for being on the show with us. And don't go away. We will, we will be right back on Moment of Truth right after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show, Dr. Shauna Braille. She's with the University of Toronto, Associate Professor of Urban Studies Program, Associate Director of School of uh, Cities. Shauna, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Now, you're here to talk about something uh, that is very important to many urban areas, transportation in urban centers, and how to improve that. Now, how do you improve it when it's already established? I guess that's the first thing that comes to mind for me is that we've already got the infrastructure that is set up now. How do we try to improve on that? So I think you've touched on a really key point. First of all, mobility is absolutely central to life, and it's Mm. central to life in cities. And our cities, as we've planned them over the last, let's say, 100 years even, have adapted in such a way that they're completely uh, sort of focused on moving people around, predominantly in automobiles. So if you look at the largest Canadian cities, even those all with strong public transit systems, the vast majority of trips are by private automobile. And so we're getting to a point where we understand there is a climate crisis. Mm. We are seeing rises in temperatures that are leading to sea level rise and flooding that are leading to unpredictable and dangerous weather conditions and patterns that are creating conditions under which people can no longer live in the places where they have settled. And so we have to start to think about how do we affect change. And a lot of that has to do with retrofitting. So Cities seven, Cities are responsible for 70% of the world's carbon emissions right now. And that's and are, a stunning amount right there. That is a stunning amount. So about 50-something percent of the world's population lives in cities, but over 70% of carbon emissions come from cities. There are 100 cities in the world that are responsible for 20% of humanity's carbon emissions, and three of those are in Canada, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. These happen to be large cities and relatively wealthy cities. Mm. And in addition, when we think about, you know, why are we focused on transportation? Well, transportation is responsible for the, for the first or second largest proportion of carbon emissions globally. And pr- most transportation takes place actually in cities. So this brings us to, under, to look at transportation and mobility. More broadly, mobility is how people move around from place to place. So we look at mobility as an opportunity to think about how do we create change, how do we move the dial, and how do we improve on carbon emissions, and as a result, how do we help to stem the increases in average temperature rise around the world? You mentioned three cities in Canada. You know, we're not exactly a hugely populated country. However, has there been a difference in the way we have laid out our cities you know, versus, say, European cities, you know, that's one thing I think is different than, than we have over here. Uh, we are geared more to the automobile. They're geared more in many ways to the to the rail system. Mm-hmm. You've really highlighted one of the a key distinction that we often think about when we talk about Canadian cities and more broadly North American cities, mm-hmm. that the time at which these cities developed was at a period in sort of the Industrial Revolution when... 
Um, the you know as the cities grew, as our cities grew, mostly after the 1920s and 1930s, was around the same time as the automobile was introduced. And so our our cities are mostly focused around cars, and the growth in population in Canada, in particular, has really sort of propelled uh, post World War II and post-introduction of the private automobile. When we look at European cities, well, they have histories that date back thousands of years in terms of urban development and in terms of the ways in which people move around from place to place, both within a place, but also, you know, even between between countries. Canada had uh, Canada has a rail network. Mm. Uh, in part, our population is so distributed, you know, across the country that our rail network is not nearly as efficient or effective mm-hmm. as it could be. Um, and the other pieces around what we choose to invest our, our money in, right? And so, and these are, these are policy choices. These are choices made by all three levels of government. And they're also choices that are influenced by the electorate, by people who are voting in our politicians who are making these choices. And so we often see uh, influence based on who the voters are, based on the, the sort of the electoral cycle of, you know, making decisions on a three or four year or five year basis versus what we need to do, which is really to be thinking very long term and making those decisions that benefit us as a, as a country and benefit our cities in the long term can be challenging to do when we have very short electoral cycles. Do you think that the governments of the day are more prone to start thinking long-term now and making those decisions that are going to have the benefits that will help curtail you know, the, the, uh, the climate crisis we're finding ourselves in so that we start to plan things better and differently? We are most certainly at a moment now where, in particular, the leaders of cities, so typically mayors and city councillors, are really thinking long-term, and they're thinking much more sort of progressively about the kinds of decisions they're making in terms of mobility, in terms of investment, in terms of economic development, in terms of population growth, in terms of sustainability. And so we really see cities leading on this front far more than we see nations leading on this front. And there are obviously exceptions, but there are many examples of of cities that are taking this approach to sorting out how to stem uh, rising temperatures, how to stem also related to congestion and how to bring the city back to be a place for people rather than for private automobiles. And so we see this happening in Paris, where the mayor has really pushed against a a tide, a really large tide um, of of, uh, sort of negative opinion, but pushed against that tide to say, you know what, this is the direction we need to go in. We're going to take back our central city. We're going to take back the areas around our river. We are going to remove private automobiles from some of those stretches. We're going to prioritize pedestrians and rapid transit, so buses. We're going to allow taxis to continue to operate here, but we're going to move private cars out. And so we see in Paris, this happened in a sort of relatively small stretch of space, but the plans are, and if she is elected once again, the mayor of Paris has every intention of continuing on this push on this push towards increased pedestrianization, removal of opportunities to drive private cars in very congested areas of the central city, and investment that enables other options or alternatives to the private car so that it doesn't have a negative or detrimental effect on the overall vibrancy of the city. 
Um, and, and that's uh, something that's, I guess, to some degree being proposed uh, here in Toronto as well. So I think you're referring to the King Street pilot, which mm. uh, it was a very successful example of a pilot project, so a, a trial, essentially, mm-hmm. of a 2.6-kilometer piece of roadway along King Street, the busiest uh, surface transit route in North America, and also one of the most congested. And in the thing, late 2017, for approximately a year, the city removed the opportunity for private automobiles to drive more than essentially one block uh, or one intersection along King Street. They prioritized rapid transit. They invested in improving the public realm. They made alternative op- options for things like uh, streetside parking, so they moved it off King Street. And what they found was that actually they increased ridership on the streetcar. They increased uh They improved commute times by a pretty significant amount, and they also improved in the immediate vicinity air quality. And so after a year of that pilot running, it was made permanent. Some criticism is that this pilot is only a very small stretch of our city, and we live in a very big city like most cities. And we need to start to think about how do we run these kind of pilots in other parts as well. And sometimes a pilot is exactly the way to change people's behavior and opinion and so once you get once you get this idea that it can work, that it doesn't have to destroy <laughs> your restaurant or mm. your business mm. or your streetscape or your or your office culture or whatever mm. it might be, and once you see the successes that come, then people are much more amenable to making those kinds of difficult decisions that actually are far better for the city mm. overall and for its future. Uh, you know, I think of uh, Ottawa downtown core of Ottawa, right? The Spark mm-hmm. Street where they have the, the walk area, the pedestrian area. European cities are, are, are have areas like that as well. Absolutely. So thinking about how do we pedestrianize mm-hmm. urban spaces in cities. Uh, again, this is something Canadian cities are coming back to uh, as opposed to having had them all along. And European cities do lead the way. One mm-hmm. thing I'll point out is that Europe is not where our, the bulk of our population growth is taking place mm. around the world. Urbanization of population and the, and the in terms of absolute numbers, we're actually looking at Asia, we're looking at China, India, Southeast Asia, and pretty much all of Africa. And this is where we really need to be able to think through and and figure out how to influence at the local scale yeah. the forms of development that are taking place. Because if what we end up with in newly developing or, or regions that are increasing in population very rapidly and urbanizing very rapidly that are following along the footsteps of North American cities in terms of suburbanization and sprawl, as opposed to thinking about how to build dense cities, then we're going to have an even bigger problem. Mm. And is your sense that they are looking to do that kind of thing? In there are areas? certainly select cities that when they have both the ability and the resources to plan in these ways, that they are looking to examples and looking to opportunities to think through how not to move away from pedestrianized streets. So if we look at, you know, cities in Southeast Asia, uh, for the most, you know, for the most part, pedestrians are and, and motorcycles are a very big part of many of many of those sort of streetscapes. As they as incomes rise, we start to see more and more automobiles, and so we have to start to think about how do we make some, how do we develop policy, and how do we ensure that we can grow economically while also making some of these changes. Singapore, which is an example of a very unique city state and also a very wealthy pocket amongst 
uh, a group of you know more much more of a developed country than a developing country, um, but on a very fixed piece of land with no area to grow except for up, and a city-state type of government that has the ability to affect sort of policy and regulation in a way that most places don't, uh, so essentially quite top-down, has been very, very effective in thinking through how to use their limited space to create an environment that is livable, that is economically vibrant, um, and that sort of responds to population needs. And so Mm. they're doing this by investing tremendously in a transit network that includes both a subway system and a very well-integrated extensive bus network. They're doing this by investing in pedestrian spaces and walkable spaces, walkable streets. They're also doing this to a lesser extent by thinking about how to use bike lanes and how to enable scooters to operate. And right now, uh, they're they're struggling with the scooter issue as Mm. well, just like many cities. Um, And the other thing they're doing is they're connecting land use planning with transportation planning, which is a really, really important step. Because if we think that we have our jobs in the center and our people can, you know, the residents can live anywhere, what we end up with is a lot of sprawl. And so we have to think about how to create complete communities, mixed use neighborhoods, so that there are opportunities for people to reduce the amount that they travel and that when they travel, that there are alternatives to private automobiles. You know, I always thought that once the internet became full-blown, that there would be much less need for us to travel because we can work from anywhere. No need to come into the office. You know, so many people that would not need to do that. That's I thought that might happen. I, I also want to touch on, uh, as we look to the future, about how we, how we try to resolve this on, on a global scale. Um, I, I'm thinking, uh, uh, for ex- example, the Sidewalk Labs proposal that's that being brought forward. Do you think that could be an example of how this might be an answer? Certainly, the Sidewalk Labs proposal, in terms of how it's approaching urbanist principles around mixed use, around a mix of housing that can uh, be flexible, so can be increased or decreased in size, uh, in terms of the way the streets can uh, can be sort of changed in time, sometimes for cyclists, sometimes for vehicles, uh, the way they're thinking about not enabling pub- private vehicles on their streets, uh, the way they're thinking about climate and the climate we have here, because you have to be thinking about local mm. place-based conditions. So the way they're thinking about how do we protect, if we want people out of their vehicles, if we want people using public spaces, and we know that in Toronto, it can be minus 15, minus 20 on a January or February day. How do we create um, sort of the conditions in terms of uh, overhead shading, in terms of things that protect against snow or sleet uh, and, and other kind of, you know, even rain. And how do we create these kinds of, of spaces and build um, elements that enable us to be outdoors more, that enable us to have a neighborhood that is walkable, that promotes sustainability? So I certainly think that is the intent, the intent behind the design of the neighborhood. Okay, I just want to let everyone know you're listening to Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Dr. Shauna Braille. She's with the University of Toronto Associate Professor of Urban Studies Program, as well as Associate Director with the School of Cities. And it's great to have her on. We're talking about how to try and improve transportation in urban areas. Density 
is a big thing. But there's there's a way to turn density into a plus, is there not? Definitely. Density is not a bad word. It's not a four-letter word. <laughs> density is a good thing because with density, what you get is the ability to create a vibrancy of place. Um, you have activity on the street all the time. So you have what Jane Jacobs called eyes on the street, right? Mm. Um, there are lots of people around. Density make, can make places safer. Density can enable small businesses to thrive. And density can enable walkability. It can enable things like the, you know, making it reasonable to put in, think about putting in a subway system. Mm. It can make ride hailing, for instance, operate on a much, much more efficient kind of basis. That's actually the kind of gist of why ride hailing is so concentrated in cities. Density is a good thing. And certainly in Toronto, we're looking, and in, and in most big cities now, we're looking towards cities in which more people live in high, mid and high rise buildings than in single family homes. And that is certainly how, you know, the the way in which a sustainable future is really sought after. It, it, it would be so much nicer. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm, I'm not prone to wanting to hear vehicles, uh, you know, as I'm walking down the street or have to watch for vehicles if I'm crossing the street or deal with the pollution that's coming out of their <laughs> exhaust tailpipes. Uh, electric cars, of course, would help improve on that end. But it's so much nicer. And what this is why what came to mind is this. Uh, Walt Disney has a wonderful system where you go there, there's no vehicles, so there's like, I think monorails, there's a tram systems, but everybody's walking. You know, that is a really tricky point, and mm. I'll tell you why. Sure. On the one hand, you're absolutely right. Walt Disney has created this model, romanticized version <laughs> of what a city could be mm. where everyone is happy and smiling <laughs> and eating cotton candy, <laughs> right? And there are no vehicles on the road, mm. and Minnie Mouse comes up to you and is friendly, but Walt Disney also happens to be exclusive. Mm. Uh, it's expensive. It ex you know people are excluded from participating, from entering if they mm. don't have a hundred dollars for each family member to go. And Disney has in fact uh, developed a number of towns, a number of towns mm. in um, in Florida, and. Well, de definitely in Florida. So there's a town called Celebration, Florida. Mm. There's another town in Florida called Seaside, mm. Florida. Seaside, Florida, you, you look like you're around my age. You might have seen The Truman Show mm. about in the late 1990s, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think. And so The Truman Show is filmed in Seaside, Florida. Okay. It is an idyllic kind of town, um, and I visited there. And in fact, the town now, so it's all, it is, it is, sort of dense but in a very small area mm -hmm. and mostly single family homes but mm -hmm. relatively close together beautiful public spaces a public square with a post office and a series of shops a hot dog in seaside florida about four years ago cost seven or eight dollars us mm. it, the affordability of the places is through the roof it's mm. mostly a visitor economy yeah um and it's very very white right so there are the, you know, on the one hand, you think about taking the right elements yeah. of a Disney yeah. type of environment. Yeah. And at the same time, you have to think about how do you turn that into an actual city, a right. cosmopolitan city, a diverse city? Well, I know uh, business is always looking how to, to save on the bottom line. And I know with any anything that is new, it always costs more initially until they figure out and start manufacturing these things much more, right? Is that not how the basic uh, economic... Uh, business business rollout goes usually? 
Typically, yes, but I'm not sure that the Disney real estate model is 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 the same as as that model. And we were just talking about the <laughs> idea of that anyway. Yes. Any any kind of change, it always looms, I guess, for people. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have to change if that happens. It's always that transformation, mm-hmm. isn't it? Going there, there's a great quote which I heard a colleague use once, which said. Change is difficult. Mm. To not change is fatal. <laughs> In this case, to not mm. change will be fatal. We already know. Right. And so we do really, it is really hard to think about not just ourselves and our own convenience, but also, you know, the future of, of our society, the future of humanity. But that's actually what's at stake. Mm. Looking at it from that very big picture kind of approach uh, makes it makes it intimidating. You think, how can I actually resolve that? Mm-hmm. And so I think sure. in this space, what we need to really do is we need to have a big vision. We need to understand course, what the yeah. what the consequences of doing nothing are. Mm-hmm. We need to understand that it's politically difficult, that it's personally difficult, that it requires change. And we need to think about how do we take and how do we create small steps that built up, even if they're all implemented over a relatively short period of time, how do these small steps build up to significant change in the future and put us in a, in a place where we can move into a sustainable future. What haven't we talked about that you feel is important? So one thing yeah. you mentioned was around this idea, the death of distance is, mm. is what is the sort of geographic term of it. Mm. This idea that with all this technology, um, we won't, you know, geography won't matter mm. and everybody can work from home. Mm. Uh, we won't need to travel as much. And in fact, all of the research shows that the opposite has occurred, <laughs> that despite all of the technological innovation we've witnessed over the last many decades, that actually our need for face-to-face interaction mm. and the the improvements that result as a result of sort of clustering of ideas and people mm. in smaller in, in, in cities mm-hmm. is one that persists. And we see this in sort of the economic geography literature with this idea of superstar cities and the growth of a small number of cities around the world um, with, you know, sort of achieving greater population growth and greater economic um, wealth and concentration and to the sort of detriment of of smaller and mid-sized cities. And so Mm. what we see with all the technology is it's actually concentrating further, not dissipating. So that's one thing. The other yeah. thing, I guess I would say, in terms of thinking about transportation and in terms of thinking about what cities can do, there are a lot of things that cities can do. And there are a lot of, if we look across Canada, every city of the, we've, we're looking at the sort of top 30 largest cities. Every city is actually doing something. If we look at the six largest cities in Canada, mm. every single one of them is testing autonomous or self-driving vehicles right now in one way or another. Every single city is looking at how do we shift more people onto public transit and how do we build more transit or how do we think about transit in different ways. So maybe it's not the bus that seats 60 people that drives on a fixed route. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a shuttle bus or a minivan and maybe instead of a fixed route, it has an on-demand system where you go and say, I'm here and I want, you know, I'm at Chorus and I want to go to the Eaton Center or whatever it is. And the bus shifts its route as it figures out who's coming Mm. on and who's getting Mm. off and creates the most efficient route possible, which actually also can decrease vehicle kilometers traveled. So cities are doing these things already. Canadian cities are doing these things. Sometimes they take place in a very, they take a long time 
to get out the door mm. or they're taking place in small pockets like for instance the three the less than three kilometers of the king street pilot or the upcoming kind of uh, autonomous vehicle shuttle that's going to take place or partnerships with firms so uh, thinking about how cities are partnering with ride hailing firms to encourage uh, users of transit to be able to get from their homes or or from a place where there isn't a sort of rationale for providing public transit or, or dense enough activity there. Mm. And so to be able to help people get to public transit so that they can then use this much mm. more efficient, sustainable right. service. So our cities really are on the leading edge of this, yep. but we need to do more of it. We need to celebrate it. Mm. And we need to think about it in a way that gets us where we want to go. Uh, you mentioned ride hailing, and and, and I, I think I heard some some initial uh, reports about you know it was supposed to help alleviate traffic, and I, and I've heard I think something to the opposite of that, as you mentioned, that there's actually more cars. Do you know so, anything about that? Yes, so there are mixed results on ride hailing, and mm. ride hailing is something I'm fascinated by because of the combination of the technology piece and the concentration in cities piece and the firm piece, mm. the way in which these firms are operating. Mm. If we, we don't have a lot of data, this is a problem. It's a problem in part because the ride hailing firms are private mm. and they have all the data mm. uh, and they hold all the data and municipalities haven't necessarily received the data they need. Right. They haven't asked for it always. And sometimes there are tensions around sharing that data. Right, right. However, there was a study that was released in the U.S. of six cities in which Uber and Lyft operate that indicated within this urban core of cities, ride hailing can add to congestion. It can mm. increase congestion. But as you move away from the core, those congestion problems don't actually right. fit. A study of Toronto recently, and so for each city it requires its own study, mm -hmm. unless we can encourage or entice or force these firms to give us the data. A study of Toronto showed that actually there was a negligible impact on congestion in the core. Mm. The other really important thing to keep in mind when we're talking about ride hailing and congestion, if we think about ride hailing as a proportion of overall trips, mm -hmm. so in Toronto, which is probably the place in Canada where there are the most ride hailing trips, it's, it accounts for 3% of all trips in the city, mm. which means ride hailing is not our congestion problem. Private automobiles are the problem, and that might include ride hailing vehicles. Mm. And we already know how to address that, how to reduce the number of trips, and that's actually by adding a congestion charge. The question is, do we have the political will to <laughs> add that congestion charge? Because right. we don't currently charge for the streets yeah. um, in a kind of cost recovery way or even in a way that indicates that those streets are being used um, but not paid for. Mm. So, um, so we're quickly running out of time. Uh, is there anything else you can think of that we is important to mention? I have one question for you. You ask your question and then I'll have my Okay, so my question me. for you is this. If uh, looking down the road, if you had your choice of how to move forward and what to do in an ideal situation to help alleviate cities with this, uh, with the congestion, with the, 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 the climate issue that we're dealing with, what would your, what would your uh, desire be to help resolve all this? So again, I think that cities need to learn from one another mm. and they need to have they need to start with a strategy and a plan and a vision, but they also need to identify five or six things that they can just get out the door pretty quickly, test them out, see how they work, study them, 
make some changes, be dynamic about the way they do this, and then move forward and keep doing this over and over again. The reason why it's so hard to manage our cities isn't because we don't know how to do it. It's actually because it's just a lot of work and they're complicated and they're changing all the time. Mm. And in order for us not to constantly be reacting to change, we need to be somehow ahead of that curve. And it's possible to do it, but it requires really intentional action. So uh, what got you into looking at all this? That is a great question. Um, I, this, my work, particularly on ride hailing, so my training is, in, is as an economic geographer, okay. and I have always been fascinated by central city land use change and industrial activity. So about 20 years ago, more, 30 years ago, <laughs> I did a study of um, the... Sorry, it was 25 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I did a study of the digital media industry in Toronto at a time when it was just emerging. Mm. Um, And really that was understanding how digitization was transforming radio, television, film, advertising, how the advent of websites and who was creating these and where they were working and how they were working. And they were working in these kind of creative spaces in the center of and a couple of key cities, Toronto, San Francisco, New York, London. Mm. Um, and so I, I've since then you know, gone on to do other studies of looking at uh, the fashion industry in Toronto, mm. looking at creative uh, services in Vancouver, like architects and interior design. I've looked at land use change in Regent Park and the redevelopment of mixed income housing in Regent Park as a very direct result of the both the challenges with concentrating pri- public housing in one space, but also as a direct result of the growth in value of real estate in our in our mm. really su- mm. sort of in our in our cities, and mm. particularly in a number of key cities. And so this study connects to my interests in innovation, but also when ride hailing first kind of came out, I noticed that it was an urban phenomenon, that the firms were headquartered in a small number of cities. So I've done some work looking at the global economic geography of ride hailing. There, about a year ago, it's changed since then, there were 11 ride hailing unicorns. These are firms worth a billion dollars or more located in 10 cities, 10 headquarter cities around the world, which is actually pretty amazing. Um, so we know that there's a regionalization of this issue, but we also know that it's responsible for tremendous disruption in cities, the way cities are regulating. These 11 firms were operating in 10 city headquarters. They had 29 cities in which they were operating their kind of strategic engineering and research and development activities. But their services, ride-hailing services, were operating in more than 2,600 cities around the world. Mm. And this growth took place in a period of about five to six years. So the way cities were responding, whether they were accepting of it or rejecting it, uh, the way in which it's impacted our labor force, the way it's in which it's disrupted mm. a number of established transportation options, and the way in which consumers have have grown to appreciate it and also the potential it has but hasn't yet reached in terms of reducing congestion, reducing private vehicle ownership, and improving on sustainability is is what's attracted me to it. And so it's been a really fun it's been a fun area of research, and I've had a chance to learn a lot and speak with a lot of really fascinating people, and, and there are so many different perspectives. I didn't mean to study something so controversial, mm. uh, but I've grown to really love it. Great. Well, thank you for that explanation. Wonderful. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today with us. 
Thank you. It was lovely to be here. And I certainly hope uh, you'll come back again because there will definitely be some more for us to talk about. Anytime. That would be great. Thank you. And uh, you've been listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. My guest, Dr. Shauna Braille, she's with the University of Toronto. She's an associate professor with Urban Studies Program and associate director at the School of Cities. It's been our pleasure to have her on the show today. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening. Until next time, onigiha. <laughs>